Welcome to episode 12 of Outrageous Love, the podcast. I am Shiraki, glad to be with you, grateful to be with you. And that's where we're going to start. We're going to start with a little bit of gratitude. And um, first, though, I want you to quickly tell your faces that you're happy. As we've been doing this now for 12 episodes, when you hit the play button on the podcast, you should be telling your faces that you're happy, right? I shouldn't even have to tell you, right? Maybe we'll do that when we start our second year. We won't even say that. But just tell your faces that you're happy just real quickly. And um, the message that we're going to give to show ourselves some love is just to tell yourself something that you're thankful for that you provide to other folks, that you're grateful for the ability, the, the talent, the skill that you have to bring to someone else. And whatever that skill, talent and gift is, just, you know, so just say thankful, be thankful for it. And this is something that you're kind of saying to yourself. And then I want you to just say something that you're grateful that someone else is provide that provides for you, family member, colleague um, that you're grateful for. And when you have time, just say just give that person a quick thank you, a grateful uh, message. Um, and the reason why I'm starting there with affirmations and not, you know, not trying not to draw it out too much is that it's kind of in a weird space right now. Right. We are definitely in a transition. I think it's something that applies nationally and locally. We continue to be in a transition with our with our new um, president and new new administration as uh, those things take place in Washington, D.C. and politically. Um, we're definitely in a transition around COVID as with the vaccinations, as well as the reopening of schools at the various levels in the various ways. I know that in our work, some schools are fully opening. Some schools are phasing in their openings and some schools are still remaining closed and remaining virtual and really taking it slow. Um, and those tend to be the larger, the larger size districts that we're working with. So everyone is kind of like in a different place. And some people are fully vaccinated. Some people are in the process of getting vaccinated. And I'm saying educators and some educators, they're not even up for vaccination. So it's kind of, you know, it, it creates this sort of uh, anxiety because everyone is kind of in a different place. And even with the reopenings, you know, the being back in person is uh, that's a transition because you haven't been in school all year. Most of most of us. And so just bringing kids back on campus and getting back to routines and procedures. And so it's 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 we're in a place of transition that feels kind of wonky, you know, and so. Not to mention the racial justice piece and the tension and anxiety that is upon Minneapolis-St. Paul right now as the trial of George Floyd starts. And um, as someone who's from Los Angeles and has gone through this, I think, at least three times, there is a certain anxiety and nervous energy around how that trial is going to go. And we don't we don't want to make any predictions. We just want to say that we, you know, like everyone else, the whole nation is looking at that and and hoping that justice is done um, in this in that situation. So 
that that's a that's another reason to kind of have this feeling of transition too. In addition to just all the other things that are going on that go on in our country around racial justice. So it feels weird. I guess that's what I'm saying. It just kind of feels weird. The energy is weird. And so I just want to my message is to what I try to do in these times is just to embrace it. Right. Embrace the transition. Embrace the change. Where is the opportunity that we can grow, that we can come out different? That's how I'm trying to look at it. And I don't have an answer for that as we kind of in the middle of March. Another transition is the coming of spring. Right. We're changing seasons, going from winter to spring and uh, the, the, the anticipation of blossom, blossoming, blossom, blossom. And so um, I just I'm kind of mixed. I'm kind of lost for words. If you can't tell, I'm not my usual smooth self. Right. But it's just I'm trying to actually simulate the energy that is kind of what I've been experiencing, certainly in my work, as we work with different districts. And so um, that what the the sort of inarticulation is really just kind of like what the energy is right now. And so I just wanted to kind of mirror that with this opening. Um, So my two cents this time folks is that we need to embrace this transition we need to embrace the change and look for those opportunities as i think about the students because certainly if the adults are feeling it the students are feeling it and where can we look for those opportunities to bring some sense of of uh you know not only validation and affirmation but security for our students as they come back, as people talk about vaccinations, as we talk about the trial, all these things that are going on in this quote unquote adult world, how can we bring a sense of security, stability for our students through the process of validation and affirmation? Um, Where can we bring some ease to them in the tension, if you will? Where can we bring some calm, if will, in the storm? Um, and not knowing, you know, what, how things are going to turn out, if you will. So that's, that's what we have to do in this moment. And it's one year ago, right? I know for me, it's been over a year that I've been on a plane and I used to be on planes every single day, literally. Um, and I have not been on a plane for one whole year. So and and uh, who who knows when we will be back to traveling? I think it's sooner than later. We can finally say that. But this just speaks to where we are right now in the sense of kind of resting with the um, wrestling with the fact that it's been one year that we've been going with the pandemic. Yet there's so much anticipation and anxiety about what's to come in the next, you know, two to three months. Right. As we as we head towards the new normal and things are reopening and such. So my message to you is as much as frazzled as it is, my message to you is where is the calm? Where is the, the semblance? Where is the stability amid all this kind of craziness right now? And that's what we need to be for our students. Always, always through the lens of validation and affirmation. That's my, that's my message today. Uh, for you today. Um, now, with that said, 
we have a very exciting guest today um, who's really bringing a total different angle to Outrageous Love, the podcast. I was really surprised because when I reached out um, for Bianca to be our guest for the Teachers Teach Part 3 of our series, right? Teachers Teach. These are teachers talking about how they've been surviving and thriving in the past year. I had no idea that Bianca was going to be uh, so interesting, right? Um, she's just very, very diverse in her background. And so she she's bringing a totally different flavor than what we're used to. And I won't even, I won't even admit the, the bias or the prejudice that I had when I reached out to her, because remember, sometimes we can't even admit it to ourselves. And that's the case now. But she totally threw me off, which is good because when we get thrown off, that means we learn, we change, we grow. And I definitely experienced that in my conversation with Bianca. So Bianca Sulia is how you pronounce that, is coming to us from uh, Edina, Minnesota, the Edina Schools. And it's a place where I worked for a few years and it's not a place offhand that you would exactly see for cultural responsiveness. Edina is um, a suburb of uh, Minneapolis, St. Paul. And we did some work there under the leadership of um, Rick Dressen, Dressen, who was the superintendent at the time. Great guy. What's up, Rick? Give you a shout out. As well as um, Mary, Mary there. Um, Mary was the, is the director of equity, and I heard that she's retiring. Congratulations, Mary. Love you. Um, and we kind of went through and did our thing there. We were able to work with all the schools. We were able to interact with the entire district a couple of times. And I, I, I always say, I know we may not have made a dent in Edina, but we did make some scratches. We, we, we made some scratches. And Bianca was a part of that work as she was... Um, a teacher at Normandale French Immersion School there. Great school, awesome teachers there. And very, uh, very uh, embraced the work really strongly and has been a peer coach, as I kind of introduce her here. She has been a peer coach as well as a teacher at Normandale French Immersion School. And this is where I I, um, interacted with um, her and the teachers there as we were doing some work with the, in fact, tell you a quick little short story. This is where I, I saw like when I walked into classrooms, cause it, it wasn't very diversity dying, you know, it's, it's, it's Edina, it's Minnesota. So not tons of diversity, some diversity, but when I walked into school and I saw the, um, these little cute white boys that were getting sent out of class or were being put in the back of the class, I realized that, you know, it's really about the student who is exhibiting behaviors that don't match up with school culture, it reinforced that theory for me um, because, you know, there weren't, quote unquote, any African-American boys to get sent to the back of the class, right? Because again, of the, not not a lot of diversity there. So I would walk in and I would, the, the, the white, the young white boys would give me that same look that I had seen hundreds of times for Afro, from African-American boys across the country, you know, because they're typically the ones being sent out of class or sent to the back of the class. So when I went to, uh, when I was in the Edina schools, particularly Normandale, once again, great school though, folks. And I saw these little boys in the back. I would always kind of chuckle to myself and I would want to ask them, I would wonder like, what cultural behavior did you uh, 
exhibit that wasn't in alignment with with school culture. Um, and and I so I, I that's one of my memories of um, being in Normandale. But I digress. Let me give you the the introduction for Bianca officially. Uh, so officially, Bianca has. Um, as I said before, she's been a peer coach and she's a fifth grade teacher in the Edina schools at Normandale French Immersion School. She has won uh, uh, several awards. I'm just going to talk about two or three of them. She has the DELE Certificate of Spanish Language from the Cervantes Institute out of Spain, right? Which is uh, really the Spanish Ministry of Culture and Education. She's been awarded translator certificates in English, French, Spanish, and Italian awarded by the Romanian Department of Culture and Justice. Let me just throw that. She speaks five languages, y'all. You talk about multilingual. This is multilingual. Five languages. I named four of them now, and you have include Romanian language in there. That would make it five. She also won the prize for young literature, awarded by the Romanian Writers Association. Education. She um, has degrees in the grad and undergrad from Western University of Timisora uh, of Romania, right? And she has a degree, her master's in British and American studies, as well as European cultural discourses. And her BA in French language and literature and English language and literature, as well as her, obviously, her teacher's license credential licensure in uh, French language arts, as well as English language arts. She also has um, achieved the Global Competence certifica- Certification um, from Columbia University. And she is a national board certified teacher in the world languages other than English, particularly French. Woo! So with that said, we are going to welcome uh, somebody who threw me off, if you will, uh, to Outrageous Love, the podcast, Bianca Sulia. Welcome, Bianca. Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here with you and just uh, have a conversation about cultural responsiveness and teaching. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, now, did I get that right? Because we just kind of talked about it. Uh, um did I butcher the last name or did I, did I get it close? You you got it really close. So the okay. G is silent. Excellent G job. G is silent. Yeah. And people need to know that when they see. Um, well, thank you. You know, you sort of check a lot of boxes for us because you have a very interesting and diverse uh, background. And I'm, you know, when people think of Edina, as you know, and I don't mean this as a as a as a as a criticism. They don't think of diversity, right? And so, um, my work in Edina um, has been um, one of my some of the work that I've been most proud of, just for that fact that you wouldn't think that I would be in a community such as Edina. Yet we came there, and I think we uh, we made a bit a little bit of a scratch, you know, working with the schools, in particular your school. We're very proud. Normandale French Immersion School, which, ladies and gentlemen, is excellent, excellent school. Um, some of the some of the really the best teaching I've ever seen around, you know, especially around the issue with with uh, language immersion. Right. Uh, really, really well done there. 
And so it's good to finally have this opportunity and to welcome you to our CLR family as you begin to help us help teachers across the country. So let's just kind of start off with what is your testimony for how you've been surviving and thriving as a teacher in this in this pandemic for the past year? Um, so first, I have to say that I used to work as a peer coach for six years before uh, returning to the classroom. And um, I was extremely eager and excited to come back to interact with students. And I certainly didn't expect that I would be interacting with them only virtually. Uh, so everybody would know that it's one thing to be a coach and then something completely different to implement those best practices in uh, interactions with students. Uh, so I would say that I was uh, two times a first-time teacher, once because I haven't taught in six years, but then uh, secondly, because I never taught virtually only. And currently, I'm a fifth-grade teacher at the wonderful French Immersion School that you mentioned, Normandale, and I'm teaching everything virtually to fifth graders. So I have a wonderful class of fifth graders, 22 students. Um, so one of the things that um, has been extremely challenging is just the overall isolation and the fear of the unknown when it comes to uh, do you really impact students the way you think you would in a virtual setting and everybody uses this word unprecedented right when it comes to the times that we live in um, so uh, for teachers particularly this has been a very unprecedented time when you had to adapt everything you do in a virtual environment um, so you always have this feeling of starting over, starting over, starting over. Um, I'm very proud of the work that uh, my team and my school have been doing in collaboration um, when it comes to adapting lessons, um, implementing CLRT strategies virtually. Um, the benefit would be the fact that since uh, we weren't always in person, uh, somehow the classroom walls disappeared and over time, we were able to connect more and um, um, to find ways to, to be creative and to continue to validate and affirm. Um, I was really eager to implement many of the best practices that I have seen other teachers implement in previous years, because as a coach, I had a chance to observe about 1,000 lessons. Um, so that's quite something to, to bring back to the classroom. Um, and I would say that the biggest uh, success is the fact that students have responded really positively to um, the virtual way of teaching. And I've tried the best that I could to continue to validate and affirm their home cultures and to turn, and to turn something that would be uh, a deficit into an asset, such as the fact that they are in their own homes. I mean, I would never, ever have this chance again to teach in an environment where my students could literally stand up and go in the next door and pick up an artifact that, let's say, represents courage for them. Uh, so validating and affirming their home cultures and finding a way to do that has been the, the biggest success. That's great. That's, that's so awesome. And I love how you phrase that because a lot of, a lot of people I've been talking to have not been using the home environment as an asset right people have just like been complaining and i you know the whole sympathy thing so i love i love how you're able just to turn that into a into a positive that's wonderful um so you know it's interesting as i listen to you because 
we we never really had direct contact. I learned about your great work through one of our other coaches, Gina, Gina Spoo, right? And she said, you know, she's outstanding. She's wonderful. And we kind of came aboard right there. So I'm realizing just listening to you right now, this is the first time we've, we or second or third, maybe second time that we've really talked, talked, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's cool. Um, so let's jump right into it here because this is all introduction for me for sure. What, um, tell us a little bit about your personal, right, in terms of its relation to cultural responsiveness. And what are, what were those early signs that you saw that where validation affirmation sort of fit into your personal life? Um, going back however far you need to go back. Um, it's pretty obvious that I have an accent. Usually, if I'm in a room full of educators and I lead professional development, I have them guess where they think I'm from, you know. So very often they do guess that I'm from Eastern Europe. So I was born in Romania, Eastern Europe, and I came to this country in 2002. I did keep my accent, um, mostly because I didn't feel the need to change it to to assimilate. I feel that will be uh, part of my uh, personality and part of what I bring to the table. Um, so I was born in uh, Timisoara. Timisoara is uh, a city in Romania, very uh, scenic, um, cultural um, environment. It's actually the place where the Romanian revolution started in 1989 when I was a kid. Uh, my city is considered the little Vienna of Eastern Europe. Um, some important things about this city that have really influenced me when it comes to cultural responsiveness would be the language and the fact that Romanian is actually a Romance language that has lots of commonalities with other Latin languages such as Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French, and Romanian. So I had a great... A uh, chance to analyze my own language by comparison with all these other languages. Um, and language is a big part of culture. So I just want to point out the fact that I've always had a passion for languages. Um, and then when it comes to more of an ethnic, um, exposure, Romania is, um, surrounded by, uh, multiple ethnicities and other countries. And very often these ethnicities were coexisting in my city. Uh, So for example, Serbians, Hungarians, Turkish influences have really been a part of my uh, background. And I was always aware that my cultural perspective is only one of multiple influences and ethnicities uh, in Romania. Um, So a lot of linguistic and ethnic diversity, which uh, propelled me to always think about culture and um, uh, realize that um, uh, even though you change your geography, which I've done by coming to the United States, your worldview is really cemented in your subconscious, in the deep, deep level of culture uh, that we always talk about in CLRT. Um, one thing that I feel it's important for me to point out would be the fact that when I came here, um, like many other people from a third world country, you have an idealized view of the United States and you feel this is the promised land and this uh, um, educational system or just this culture will be fulfilling everybody's needs. And then you have a bit of a cultural shock on multiple levels. Um, so when I came here, I had an idealized view of the U.S. and it 
it took me a while to recover. <laughs> At the same time, what a, what a great opportunity for me to use myself as an example when it comes to unlearning, right, stereotypes and thinking about um, being presented only one perspective on anything, um, and I've, I've often uh, used my personal experiences in connections with students and teachers. And sometimes the fact that you talk about yourself, that's uh, really much more powerful than presenting a quote or a poem or somebody else's article. So I was able to use my cultural experience often as a springboard to deep discussions on uh, uh, cultural responsiveness and, and equity. Mm. Excellent. 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 Um so let me move to your light bulb moment, right? Um, what, when, given you know that great background in history that you just gave us, and um, coming from the background that you come from, and then going into education, what was your moment of recognition that all students aren't educated equitably? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing that I want to point out when it comes to culture, it's a metaphor that always made sense to me. And that's the fact that when you are uh, in your own culture, you are a bit like a fish in the water and the culture is uh, the water you swim in and you really need to come outside of your um, comfortable environment to be able to construct additional meaning. So um, I'm just pointing that out because very often I've had um, um, opportunities to constantly negotiate my identity as a bicultural person. So, uh, for example, I always feel that in, in my first few years, I um, went through this process of assimilation and I gave up a lot of who I am and I got lost for a few years. And then that approach didn't work for me. And then I came back and wondered who I was and reflected on my identity and my culture and then was able to adapt and become bicultural. So just because I lived in Romania and then in the United States, that did not make me bicultural. It was through this process of negotiation and sacrifice, let's call it, that I was able to consider myself a, um, bicultural right now. Um, mm. and, and when it comes to the light bulb moments, I would say that luckily they occurred during my first year of my arrival to the United States when I was enrolled in a master's in education program at Hamlin University. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took two extremely important classes. So um, just in case uh, some of um our listeners don't know, if you are not born, raised, and educated in the United States, in order to get any type of de- teaching licensure, you are uh, required, it's mandatory that you take a class on education and cultural diversity. Mm. Otherwise, they don't even give you a teaching license. So I was able to be enrolled in this particular class, Education and Cultural Diversity at Hamlin University. And... Um, at one point in one of those classes, we were asked to be part of the famous equity line. You know, when you ask question, when you are being asked questions and you need to step forward or backwards. Right. Well, for me, for me, that was a shock. That was a, the, that was a trauma infused experience doing that particular. Um, line because I still had this idealized view that I'm in promised land. Nobody has taught me anything else yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I mean, I mean, this class with uh, 33 other educators, and um, I was really stunned to see that at the end of the questioning, um, all 
minority teachers were way behind the white teachers. And I was very confused. This is during my first year. Um, I um, asked lots of questions. I realized that moment that I probably have misunderstood. Um, I probably was only presented one perspective of uh, the United States mm. and, that, and that it is my uh, duty to ensure that I have a complete view of this place. I mean, because I feel that's the beauty about multiple perspectives. And that's why we need to teach our students. If you don't have a multiple perspective approach, your view of the world is incomplete. And that's the most important thing we want to infuse in our teaching. So in this particular context, um, it was a shock to me to see that um, uh, all minority teachers were way behind. And obviously, I learned why and how and all the historical uh, factors. And the second one, which pretty much I feel occurred that same week in my uh, uh, graduate studies, um, I took a class called Educating for Equity. And the teacher asked us to raise our hand if we believe that the United States is a great place for everyone. And I was among the three mostly very extremely naive teachers who raised their hand. Mm. Now, the, the good part about this is the fact that 30 others didn't raise their hands, right? And in that, in that context, the, the professor prompted me to, to justify myself or to explain myself. Again, I was pretty innocent and naive and mostly talked from my perspective of a person who comes from a third world country where I wouldn't have had access to education, where I wouldn't have had the freedom of speech. And I focused a lot on those without having the background knowledge and uh, prior knowledge to, to under understand all the subtleties um, of the system. So luckily, I'm a quick learner. So I feel that, uh, you know, being flexible is really important because you don't need to unlearn then so many different things. Um, and I realized that I have a chance to be part of the educational system here and I will um, either be part of the solution or part of the problem. And I decided to be a big part of the solution. Mm. And, and uh, to sometimes use my uh, innocence and naivete and preconceived notions um, to provide real examples of how you can be ignorant one day, but then, like you always say, your first thought is not your last thought, right? Right. So right. <laughs> right. I would say these would be some some of my light bulb moments. Let me ask you, where where did your pre pre preconceived notions of America, United States being, you know, sort of like, you know, the magic place for everyone where, you know, everyone succeeds. It was that from television, movies, reading, what people have been telling you, like what, what drove that concept to begin with um, for you? I would say uh, media had a lot to do with that. So uh, very often when you are from a third world country, you are being portrayed with how wonderful things are in the U.S. Then certainly various people that have traveled here um, and they uh, mostly remember superficial things. Let's say uh, you have the ability to own a car and you have a car. Well, for some people in Eastern Europe, that's huge. 
Um, for example, in my context, I've never had a car. My parents never had a car when they were growing up uh, or even when they, they were adults. My, my dad owned his first car when he retired at 56 years old from, uh, from the Romanian army. So it's all context, right? When it comes to your perspective, a lot of it is context. Sometimes I wonder if the fact that I was not bombarded subconsciously with negative images of, let's say, my minorities in the U.S., if that helped me unlearn a little faster. Um, we all have implicit bias. But, for example, in my case, I was never portrayed, let's say, uh, Black people as uh, as negative. On the contrary, we were portrayed the positives, which were stereotypical in some sense, sports, music, and things like right. that. Right. But we weren't bombarded with the negative stereotypes. Right. So, Got it. Got it. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Um, let me ask this next question, and then I, I'm going to have another follow-up. But let's go to the next question and kind of stick to the script here. So you are very familiar with the Rings of Culture. Um, and uh, this is the one where your friends and family and coworkers, they're going to be very interested in what you're going to say, right? This is the one that everyone looks forward to. Which of the two rings resonate with you um, the most? So I would say that the ethnic culture is something that I um, reflect on on a regular basis. My connection with my Latin roots, a certain way of uh, using language, a certain way of expressing your personality in a more expressive and exuberant manner, um, showing emotions, being more explicit in how, how you how you talk and how you interact. Um, so ethnicity would be very important. Um, a second one would be maybe some components of the socioeconomic ring. Mm. Not, not the one that has to do with income, but the one that has to do with education and let's say what your occupation is. So I feel that growing up um, in a communist country, um, I was always told a bit indoctrinated quite by my parents that education it will be um, the force that will help all of us overcome our circumstances. So um, there was a lot of um, investment, let's call it, in private classes, in a variety of different languages, even though we didn't have a car or we mm. didn't have a fancy furniture in an apartment or we lived in an apartment. So we, we didn't have a car, but I did have two or three different tutors that were uh, were teaching me in various languages or they were trying to get me caught up uh, when it comes to schooling. Because another thing that I actually forgot to mention when it comes to my biography would be the fact that growing up in Romania, in a communist country, I didn't have very positive school experiences. So I... Um, um, I didn't feel validated and affirmed. So as a result, I became much more compassionate and uh, able to connect with, uh, with, with students who weren't necessarily following the traditional um, way of teaching. So I would say that in the end really worked for me pretty well. But these would be the two, ethnicity and socioeconomics, I would say. Interesting. I don't think everyone, anyone's done socioeconomic yet. So that's interesting. Um, now, let me ask two follow-ups just real quick. One is, what has your experience been like as a quote-unquote Caucasian mm -hmm. and people assuming that you are 
white you subscribe to whiteness, quote unquote, right? Um, especially in Minnesota, right? I'm just, I'm just, I'm really curious. And I'll say from my standpoint here in Los Angeles, I've, I've done this a lot of times where I've been in situations where I've been among Caucasians and I assume that they were quote unquote subscribing to whiteness, but come to find out they were Europeans, you know, they were, they were like, they had no context of white Anglo-Saxon, um, as we define it. And I really that I you know I had to do my own first thought, last thought dynamic for myself because I came I came into those situations with a prejudgment. I was wondering how how have you what's been your experience when people have made those assumptions about you? I think that because I um, uh, ended up being mostly a teacher in this community. Um, and a teacher in a French immersion school, many already assumed, okay, that I will bring a cultural background to the table that maybe is not American. I feel that if I had been a Romanian teacher in an English-speaking school, then there would have been a different way in which I would have been approached. So in, in, uh, uh, in reality, I do not teach, let's say, in English. All I teach is in French. I do teach uh, only one class in English. So I was able to to come um, in an environment where my European background was an asset and people wanted to find out how did I learn the language or how I can show my cultural background. I feel that my experiences would have been different had I been in another school where French is not the main mode of communication. At the same time, in many other circumstances which are not professional, it's extremely difficult for me to go anywhere without somebody asking me uh, a series of very predictable questions, such as, where is your accent from? And how long have you been here? And do you like it here? Mm. (laughs) I think everywhere I go, I mean, very often, you cannot hide your accent, right? So it's important to think about that from from this uh, perspective. And maybe sometimes I don't feel like saying on all my history and my entire biography to everybody when I go to Starbucks and I say I want a venti latte. Maybe I want to keep it for myself, but I have to get used to this idea of being vulnerable, you know? But I would say probably... Very often I'm being asked about my accent and where did I learn English? How did I learn English? Where do I work? Um, how have things been here for me if I have family overseas? It's a predictable list of 10 questions that I'm being asked in various different environments. Um, I, I think sometimes, you know, through assimilation, if I were to attend a professional learning uh, um class, I would be treated as if I be, belonged to American whiteness. And then I would be addressed as part of the group. Right. So. Right. Mm. Oh, okay. I was, I was curious about that. The fourth question that we, we cover is the concept of situational appropriateness. Um, and I'm going to say, since you're worldly here, global dexterity, if you will. And I want you just to talk about times where you've had to culturally adapt um, to the culture language of the context. And did you have success or not? Like, that's really the key part to this prompt. It's not just the fact that we because we all have to be situationally appropriate, which, you know, I've I've talked about a lot. The real question is, are you able to be, be do it successfully or not? 
And so I'm sure you have a lot of examples because you're coming from so many different perspectives. Um, it's extremely hard for me to just pinpoint one example because of uh, what you just mentioned, the fact that it would happen every day or I would be code switching every day. But something that was really obvious to me when I first came here had to do with a certain level of communication and expression, um, more more particularly de- dealing with conflict in an open or covert manner or showing emotion or being direct about providing feedback on different things. Uh, so for example, not it's not only that I am in the United States, but I'm in Minnesota. And um, it took me a long time to understand that many people in Minnesota, they are not used to this very Latin, exuberant, open way of gesticulating, talking, uh, presenting feedback, being in their space. So it took me some time to realize, okay, there is a huge... uh, respect and need for space, for privacy, for being more reserved. So I would say from that perspective, I had to work somewhat on uh, code switching because very often I would provide feedback or I would be very exuberant about something and then I would be told that I'm too passionate or uh, this is not a place where you show a lot of emotion or uh, my favorite word, intense. <laughs> so, so I, I learned, I learned code switch, you know, um, and realize, okay, well, when I'm with my language teachers, there is a certain way in which we understand language and culture and how all our background, um, perspectives and experiences come through and we can be loud and we can be uh, exuberant. But when I provide feedback to a parent, I will be much more politically correct and much more reserved in how I do different things. I would say one example would be the fact that um, um, when I first started working at my school, I was preparing for conferences and I had the... an outline of the feedback that I wanted to present to the parent. And I uh, checked in with a teacher who was supposed to be my mentor in that particular first year. And uh, they were pretty much stunned to see that I wanted to provide this feedback. Um, And then they trained me in this idea that um, it's very important to say things, but in a subtle manner. Um, It's very important to establish a connection and trust and not be very open and just provide constructive criticism, which is something that I was much more in tune um, doing in Romania. So in Romania, when you go to a... a, um, teacher, first of all, the teacher is the main authority in that particular school. You would never question what the teacher says. So when I first came here, I had the same idea that I'm the expert um, and the parent will be happy to receive feedback from me, explicit feedback or or specific feedback. So I feel that I've learned over time that in the end, you can provide feedback for learning not always of learning, and you need to do it in a different way depending on who your population is and what's their way of uh, internalizing feedback. Um, Because not everybody appreciates constructive criticism. One thing that I feel has worked for me since I'm European when I feel when I feel that the conversation is not moving forward because everybody is too polite, they are um, in that zone of being uh, 
it's pretty much when you don't have the emotional, psychological stamina to deal with the conflict or with the feedback that you're being provided. I want to make sure that we're making a distinction between code switching and situational appropriateness in this sense. When we are being situationally appropriate, we don't feel like we have to give up anything. That's different than technically how we're defining code switching. Mm-hmm. Where you do feel like there's something that I need to give up. Right. Yes. And I don't I don't I don't think it's important as much for us as adults as it is for the students. It's a very thin line between the two. And the teacher and me, you know, I just want to make sure that in your mind, you, you, we, we're making that slight distinction. Does that make Thank sense? Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. So let's go to that last one, that last one, which is what moves you, what grooves you, what inspires you, what keeps you attuned in attunement with this work of validation and affirmation? Um, so I'm, I would say that I'm a big fan of poetry and quotes and inspiration. And one of the quotes that I encountered lately beca- uh, belongs to Isaac Newton, who used to say that even after we discover the most beautiful shell by the seashore, there is still the vast beauty of the ocean to explore. And mm-hmm. I absolutely love this quote because it's yeah. an invitation. It's an invitation to further exploration, further reflection reflection on anything and everything that has to do with the teaching and learning. It's pretty much um, uh, pointing out the fact that what we know really is just a drop and what we don't know, it's the ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I love this quote. Um, sometimes I uh, think about the experiences that I've had in uh, Colombia when I uh, was enrolled in a global competence certification and I had a chance to uh, travel to Colombia and to discuss cultural competence and global competence with uh, the teachers there. And at one point, they all said that um, um, one way in which they inspire their students is to remind them of this concept of siempre adelante, meaning always move forward. Whatever your circumstances are, move forward. Um, so I really love this Spanish way of um, of um, us being inspired to keep on going and keep on exploring and overcome our circumstances. And lastly, um, I absolutely love the poem by Maya Angelou, uh, Still I Rise, especially because I'm uh, the mother of uh, two black girls and I want them to be inspired uh, and to believe in themselves. And I want to be uh, part of the solution and touch the future for them in such a way so that they can have a, um, a chance of uh, becoming the best that they can be. And if you are okay with it, I can uh, read a couple of those uh, um, lines from the poem, Still I Rise. Well, wait, 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 Bianca, Bianca you just, you just threw it, <laughs> you just, you just threw it, uh, some, some context there that, I, you know, you said you, you, you're raising two black girls. Can you, can you expound on that a little bit? Inquiring minds want to know. <laughs> yes, I do have two amazing black girls, biracial girls. Um, their names are Soleil. She's almost seven and Sierra. She's five. And uh, I feel that one of the main reasons for which um, 
I am doing uh, my best to become an anti-racist educator is uh, because I do want them to uh, to live in a better world than many other um, black people were able to live for for dozens and hundreds of years. Um, and in anything that and everything that I do, the fact that I'm thinking about them and and their future um, is the catalyst for change. It's what uh, wakes me up in the morning. It's what's pushing me. It's what's uh, giving me the courage to to speak up in staff meetings when everybody's silent or um, or when we push the envelope too much and then we don't want to offend other people. So. Um, I feel that in everything that has to do with the equity and the culture, I was able to experience things, not only as an educator, but as a mother of two black girls mm. and, as a, and as an immigrant from a third world country. And um, as teachers, I feel that we are the solution because we are educating the future. We are touching eternity and we don't really know whom and what we say, different things that might impact, impact our students. So that's a big that's, part um, of my story. You know, you're, you're, like I said, you're very, very, have a very, very interesting background and you just hoping you probably opened up a whole nother episode for us. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> you, you we we have to do a part two with you, uh, just just on what you just said right there. But um, I'm gonna let you uh, I'm gonna let you go on this one. So go ahead and uh, give us your 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 lines from uh, the poem. Okay, so the poem is "Still I Rise." It's such a beautiful poem. I won't read and recite all of it, just some of it. Okay, um, "Still I Rise" by Maya Angelou. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod me in the very dirt, but still, like dust, I'll rise. Does my sassiness upset you? Why are you beset with gloom? Because I walk like I've got oil wells pumping in my living room. Just like moons and like suns with the certainty of tides. Just like hopes springing high. Still, I'll rise. Did you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops weakened by my soulful cries? You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still, like air, I'll rise. Out of the huts of history's shame, I rise. Up from a past that's rooted in pain, I rise. I'm a black ocean leaping and wide, welling and swelling I bear in the tide. Leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise. Bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave, I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. All right. That is wonderful. Thank you. That was awesome. And uh, I, you know, this is really our first time meeting, to be honest. And I love you. You are, you are all about the validation affirmation, you know, and that's, that's really what our work is about. And um, I'm glad and, and blessed and grateful that you are a part of our work. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime, anytime for part two. Okay. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs>
thank you, Bianca. That was really good. Uh, you went, you covered a lot of ground, very diverse, uh, you know, in so many different ways. And I really appreciated the examples that she gave during the course of the uh, little interview there, because she really showed the power of cross-culturalism, um, the power of seeing how CLR kind of weaves its way through different um, cultural identities, if you will, or as she used the term, multiple perspectives. So I, I think that this was a very um, powerful um, journey to responsiveness because it certainly does not match the tradition that we've become a, we've come a, become accustomed to thus far as we wrap up our first year. Um, I would probably liken it more to Claudia's if you listen to the December episode there um, in terms of um, just coming from another country and having another perspective and then and then matching that perspective to what it means to be, quote unquote, um, in the United States. Right. And you heard that very poignantly from um, from Bianca today. And I just I just appreciate her and uh, what she's doing in her, in her classroom and for her students and, you know, for the, for the community at large. So thanks. That was awesome. Um, so as I've hinted during out, during the course of the session today, we are coming upon one year. There are so many things to reflect upon around this year. And I didn't want to do too much of that with this episode, because I think that's kind of going on all over but one thing that we can reflect upon and celebrate is our anniversary episode, which will be next month, where we're going to take it back to the personal. So it will be a personal episode. I won't give it away, but we will we will have another very special guest, as always, as I um, clue you in a little bit into um, the personal side of Dr. Holly. Uh, Inquiring minds want to know, um, but we're just going to spend the April episode celebrating one one year you know we've only done 12 episodes which is odd for a podcast as you know if people listen to them um we've only we've only had 12 episodes so we're looking forward to starting off year two season two if you will and we're gonna we're gonna talk about um something that i've mentioned a few times and that is the laboratory school that we started um from 2003 to 2013 it was called the cultural language academy of success and I'm going to talk about it through the lens of um, someone personal that's personal to me so that you kind of see both sides. It's personal, but it's also professional. And it's also kind of trying to honor the work of the, the school, the Cultural Language Academy Success, which was a laboratory school for the approach that we're bringing to you. So it'll be it'll be it'll be once again different. It'll be personal. We're going to uh, celebrate um, and we're also going to reflect. Um, so we'll be able to hit all of those notes in the next episode, but we got to do our dedication. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this dedication to just, you know, the families of the, the people we have lost to police brutality, um, murder, law enforcement issues. Um, I recently, listened to the family of George Floyd as the trial was coming up on a, on an interview. And I think that sometimes we forget about them and what they're going through, the pain they're feeling, the children that have been left without their, without their mom or their dad or 
you know, parents who've lost their sons and daughters. So I just wanted to just dedicate this episode to those folks, um, the families that are left behind due to um, police brutality, murder, issues around law enforcement. Um, And let's just kind of keep them in our prayers as they go through um, the upcoming trial and those who've had to experience it in the past. Um, That's who we're dedicating this episode to. As always, I want to say to you, thank you. Thank you for you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for uh, rating or whatever you do with the podcast. Uh, Really appreciate that. And we look forward to the second season. Um, So stay safe. Stay fabulous. Grateful to uh, my editors. Thank you for your work uh, that you do in making me uh, making it sound good. Um, So stay safe. Stay fabulous. And we will look forward to the April episode, which is the season two of Outrageous Love, the podcast. Hey.